Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we wander through the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including the 2019 Jaguar I-Pace has been revealed. It's the Brits putting pressure on Tesla. I reflect on the size of some information screens in cars and what sort of information we can get. I've just got to drive the BMW X3 SUV and the information system and its ability to inform you is a good example of how this area of vehicles is improving. We road test the Mercedes E400 convertible. It is elegant motoring in the extreme. And in our panel discussion with Errol Smith and Brian Smith, we take a chirpy look at some quirky news stories, including what sort of motoring memorabilia would you like to buy? Is it James Bond's personal Aston Martin? The mini bike from Dumb and Dumber? Or the car on which Jeremy Clarkson dropped a piano? Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Some time ago, Overdrive reported that for safety reasons, silent electric cars will have to emit engine-like sounds while running. The rule was first demanded by the US Congress in 2010, following safety concerns that quiet cars were hazardous to blind or hard-of-hearing pedestrians. However, the Trump administration delayed the implementation of the law to conduct a review of petitions from automakers. Nissan, for example, had argued the alert was only needed for cars travelling at up to 20 kilometres per hour. The Trump administration has now approved legislation requiring engine sounds in cars travelling up to 30 kilometres an hour or 18.6 miles per hour. Manufacturers have until 2020 to install the technology. The rule will allow for variations in the car sound that automakers use. In the US, a report recently released by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology shows that up to 30% of Uber drivers are actually losing money once car costs are accounted for. Uber pays drivers a net sum after their own commission has been deducted. But drivers have to cover costs such as fuel, vehicle servicing and maintenance, insurance and depreciation. And that is before you can calculate the actual wage earned by an Uber driver. And then there is tax to be paid on that. The report which surveyed 1,100 drivers shows that in the US nearly three quarters of drivers earn less than the minimum wage. The median wage before tax is $3.37 per hour. However, this may not be the case in Australia. And many people drive for Uber for the flexibility in working hours. The development of self-driving cars continues unabated, at least in the US. California regulators recently approved rules that will remove the requirement for a human to be in the driver's seat for backup. Instead, companies like Google's Waymo self-driving cars division will have to be able to operate vehicles remotely. Essentially, California has turned self-driving cars into drones like those the military uses. The new rules take effect in April. California's new rules differ from neighbouring Arizona. 
In suburban Phoenix, Waymo has been operating a fleet of self-driving autonomous rideshare vehicles that don't have human backup, and recently received permission to test its driverless Chrysler minivans across Arizona. Unlike California, Arizona has not created regulations specifically targeting self-driving vehicles. We have been reporting on details of Tesla's new in-house navigation and maps engine for some time now. In December, CEO Elon Musk said that it was light years ahead of the current system and coming in early 2018. Now a few months into 2018, Musk says the upgrade is almost done. The new map system, called Tesla Maps, has been developed using new open source modules from Mapbox and Valhalla. As for navigation, Tesla has been working on a new routing engine, but the differences with the current systems are not clear. Jaguar has emerged as the first major automaker to take on Tesla with luxurious dedicated electric car. Jaguar recently announced the 2019 I-Pace, which is capable of driving over 380 kilometers on a single charge and can sprint to 60 miles per hour faster than many sports cars. Under its shapely skin, which blurs the line between cars, crossovers and wagons, the I-Pace features a 90-kilowatt lithium-ion battery pack that can be charged from empty to 80% in around 40 minutes using the 100-kilowatt DC fast charging stations, which can now be found across Europe. Jaguar fits the I-Pace with two electric motors, one for each axle, to give the vehicle standard all-wheel drive. Combined, they deliver 294 kilowatts, which translates to 394 horsepower and 512 pound-feet of torque. It has a single-speed transmission. Like Tesla, the I-Pace door handles pop out to greet users and then retract when no longer needed. An enormous fixed glass moonroof is also included. And that has been the news. In the road test we have coming up in the program of the Mercedes E400, we note that it has two large digital screens. Each is over 12 inches in the length of the diagonal of the rectangular screen. One is in front of the driver, one to the left to the centre of the dashboard. This allows for displaying of large maps and other things, but it raises the point of what sort of information you can and should display now that we have bigger screens. The Tesla has an even larger screen, although it sits with the largest measurement in the vertical line in the portrait style, rather than horizontal in the landscape style of most other vehicles. I have just stepped into a BMW X3, which is a small to medium size SUV, and I really like the information they show and the way they are presenting it. Some years ago, BMW got a huge amount of negative press when they first introduced a mouse-type control of their infotainment system. But now they have got a much better overall approach. The things I like are these. The dial to move the cursor operates easily and is not too fast. The system has a touchscreen, so I don't have to do everything by a knob and cursor. The Mercedes does not. The system does not rely on incomprehensible symbols or buzzwords, the meaning of which are not clear. It displays a list of options and a brief description of what the highlighted one means. And it has an owner's manual option 
that gives simple-to-understand instructions such as how to set and store radio stations. Now, you might say that an owner will get used to the things and a road tester who only has the car for a week is therefore not representative. But with car systems now having a much wider range of features and more complicated paths to do these new capabilities, if we do not have easy-to-learn approaches, we will end up with immense frustration, which means poor driving. Sometimes I have stopped on the side of the road to try and find out how to select a few of my favourite radio stations and then store them. In some cases, I have struggled for five or more minutes and then given up. I am not in a good mood when I start driving again. Of course, if I have the car for longer, I may learn how to do it more easily if I can remember. But again, it may take me several steps to get to what I think is a very basic problem. But back to the BMW. The model I had has a heads-up display for the driver, and that's very good. It's good because it simply has the speed you are travelling at and the speed limit. The speed is given in white unless you go over the limit and then it turns to red. And if you turn the navigation system on and get route instructions to a destination, the head-up display shows the next instruction. And on major roads will even give you the lane you should be in. And finally, if you put the adaptive cruise control on, it will also show you how it is adapting to the car in front. Now actually, this might be getting to the point of too much information, but I guess I can turn some of it off. It's just that I haven't had time yet to look up how to do it. You're listening to Overdrive. Why do people buy a convertible? I think if it's a low-priced one, it might be just to go to the beach, maybe have a surfboard sticking out of it, something that you might associate with a small four-wheel drive vehicle. But the upmarket ones, the very exotic cars like a Ferrari, I think they have the top down so that people can see their beautifully white implanted teeth. But, but is there an elegance to them? Is there a one that, that has that sense of style rather than just a sense of showing off. Well, we've been driving a Mercedes E400, Alan Zervis and I, and I think Alan has a line on that. Hello, Alan. Thanks for your time. Hello, David. Thanks for having me. Why would you buy the Mercedes? Oh, God, I don't know where to start. For me, uh, uh, an open-top car goes right back to the first days, the early days of motoring. Uh, and now you don't have to be cold. You don't have to be uncomfortable. You know, they're, they're just, it's just a beautiful experience. Let's start with the looks of it. The, the Mercedes, this is based on the E-Class, which is their fairly large sedan. Is it an elegant-looking vehicle? I think so. And uh, as I said to you the other day, the fact that it's got a fabric folding roof makes the back look a little bit more, uh, a little, little bit slimmer, a little bit less fat than the metal folding roofs of some of the other cars. And it's a lovely, almost velour looking. We had the one that was blue. So black, to my mind, often looks tacked on and white looks like it could get dirty very quickly or, or beige. So this was just a nice sort of like a pair of good shoes with a nice sort of insert in them. That's right. It, it really did suit it. And I think the fact that it was that kind of navy colour, I think, really looks very, very classy. Uh, and the front, of course, is dressed up by those beautifully adorned headlights with the, the daytime running lights and LED headlights. They just look spectacular. 
Alan, inside the interior, it had a quite a lot, but nothing was over the top to my mind. Well, I described it in my review as being luxurious to the point of being overdone. <laughs> I thought it was, it was beautiful, but you know, it's like they've left literally nothing out. They thought we need to put this in, and oh, we need to put something else in. Oh, we need to put something else in, and they crammed as much in as humanly possible. Huge screen, not only a digital screen, not only in front of the driver, but uh, beside them towards the passenger as well. There's two twelve. 0.3 inch screens that form one big band right across from the middle of the car all the way over to in front of the driver uh, but neither of them are touch screens. No that's a little bit disappointing and I'd have to say that it obviously gave you a lovely big map for example mine is bigger than yours type of thing to do with the map. <laughs> the engine was there enough power this is the 400 isn't it? Yeah I thought it had plenty of power it's uh, supposed to be 5.2 from 0 to 100 seconds and I think that's plenty enough to be going on with. The operation of the roof was it smooth? Oh, very smooth. And look, it was pretty quick too, considering that the roof folds into a compartment in the back, properly covered, and that compartment can be used when the roof is up for boot space. So yeah, it was a, it's an incredibly uh, smart bit of kit. The reversing camera was unusual. How would you describe it? That would be incredibly clear. Uh, and I could probably reverse a car just using the camera. I don't think I'd even have to lift my eyes from the screen. But, of course, that does aid the fully automated parking. Oh, now, how did you find that? Difficult to work at first. It doesn't seem to be quite as easy to get to know as some systems. But once you do get to know it, it's incredibly easy to use. You press the button and then you take your hands and feet off everything and the car does the rest for you, including gears, indicators accelerator etc it's just it's extraordinary and it goes very very close to objects around without actually hitting them the thing i found interesting was that if you wanted to park it at 90 degrees in an appropriate space it asked you if you wanted to go forward and back and to go forward it really had to manipulate go wide check that there weren't things around it it was not just a simple reverse in sort of park Quite right. And of course, if it gets you into a parking spot, be it an angled one or a right angle or a parallel park, it will also get you out of it. But it has to have gotten you into it. It has to know what's there. And it also, again, asks you whether you want to go left or right when you reverse out. Spoke of the clarity of the pictures you get in the reversing camera. Of course, it also gave you 360 degrees. Gee, I reckon that's good. It shows you the lines you're parking in, among other things. Did you find that easy? I did. I did find it very easy. And of course, that's paired to a 360 degree, degree view top down. So it gives you both of those views and you can perfectly line up the, the line markings of the uh, parking space with the edges of the, of the lines on the, on the screen. It was just a beautiful thing. What's it worth? About 157500 Plus on roads. Plus on roads, of course. I'd say the Mercedes E400 a Cabriolet was a lovely car, one that I was comfortable to enjoy driving around in, and I suppose it uh, looked good to those who were looking on as well. Alan, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, David, and thanks for uh, coming with me in a car that made us feel a bit special. <laughs> and you can see Alan's pictures of that by going to his website at gaycarboys.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive.
Well, last week we raised the topic of the possibility of the Chinese bringing back a very small, iconic BMW type of vehicle, the Isetta. It was a little two-stroke engine back in the mini, mini car days before the real mini, and it wasn't particularly helpful, good, safe or necessarily efficient. Well, let's try and move into some more modern memorabilia. Errol Smith and Brian Smith. Gentlemen, good day. Hello, David. David. Gentlemen, of these three vehicles, which would you be most likely to want to own and perhaps even, may I say, pay big money for? Actor Daniel Craig's limited edition Centennial 2014 Aston Martin Vanquished, number 007. Or... Perhaps the Tesla Model S, you can buy it now, but will it become a collector's car? Or would you go for the more extreme, the mini bike from the movie Dumb and Dumber? Brian uh, and Errol, uh, uh, did you ever see this movie? I did. Errol, have you seen it? No, thankfully. (laughs) I, I think that's a fair comment. Brian, why did you see it? Because it was there, David. Yeah. It starred Jim Carrey and who was the other guy? Uh, Jeff Bridges, I think. Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels, sorry. Yes. Who's been in some very serious stuff. This was not serious. This was a movie that called on Jim Carrey to overact. Oh, they're all like that. (laughs) Yes. Now, this minibike is the classic sort of 1970s minibike where – where you had sort of like a little frame, a, a tiny little engine, tiny little wheels, and, uh, you know, it's like a – looks kind of more like a shopping cart that's been turned into a motorbike than a than a mini motorcycle. So it, it's got a bit of heritage to it, I suppose. It's the actual – one of the two actual bikes, but they want $35,000 at least for this thing. Can I just say it looks like the sort of thing Errol would have been proud to make. Yeah. Gee, gee thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, you tinker with these things, don't you? Okay. You put little motors on things. You, you've you built your own drone. I, I think I've grown out of grown out of that phase. But uh, as for your list of vehicles, I think you could have just stopped with the first one. Yes. Not even bothered to, it's very difficult to beat that one, I think. Not a fan of the Tesla, Errol? I don't mind the Tesla and you, and, and probably the, the Tesla uh, Model S with, you know, its ludicrous mode may even be a little bit quicker off the line than the than the Aston Martin, but I'd take the Aston Martin any day. There was a story that uh, was written, I can't remember where, the Los Angeles Times, was it, that uh, talked about whether the Tesla would be a, a long-going car, and they compared it to the Kaiser, which came out, in my memory, from the 50s, and they uh, boomed from 1947 to 1955, I see. They sold three-quarters of a million cars over nine years of production, it was deemed to be fantastic. They even made a movie out of it. So like the Tesla and, you know, Elon Musk, there is that uh, element of linking to modern media of the time. It was thought to be invincible and it fell over. Perhaps that makes, of course, it more collectible too. What, what would be the best news if you owned a Model S would be for the company to go broke, wouldn't it? Well, no, mm. you've got to get the thing serviced and I, I think its value is going to, fall to pieces if the company goes broke okay it's just it's notoriety then i don't mean in two years time i mean perhaps in 20 only if they make a, a famous movie trilogy about it where it <laughs> uh, can travel back in time <laughs> <laughs> well yeah look what it's done for delorean <laughs> exactly
<laughs> the James Bond car is being sold for charity, and I think they're asking seven hundred thousand or so pounds. Was that the figure I saw? It's certainly a very elegant car, isn't it? I saw one in a car park the other day, a bit like you know one of the Aston Martin models, similar to this. It was stunning from the side. When you see that picture there, long, elegant-looking thing. Mm. It's rather good-looking. They, they, they do make a good-looking car, David. Hmm. There's yeah, been a bit of controversy about Daniel Craig's attitude to the films, but he seems to be really throwing in the towel if he's getting rid of his car. <laughs> and it really, it really is number 007. That's it's was the you know that's model it's the uh, the seventh one they built. Ah, can I just add one other car that's for sale? Of course, is the Jeremy Clarkson Morris Marina that they dropped a uh, piano on. It's a lovely sort of thing. Apparently, the Mor- Morris Marina Association was rather perturbed at that, very hurt by the fact that they destroyed it. Well, someone has restored that car. Uh, Mm. Now, there's two things there. Why would you do it just because Jeremy Clarkson had something to do with it? And why would you do it because it's a Morris Marina? I know. The the only reason it seems to be is that it was the only one of that year that was ordered in black. So it was actually quite a unique car. Like a Morris Marina is an awful car. And and people who own it are not so much like a club as as a support group um, (laughs) for, for people who own Morris Marinas. But, but what I can't understand is is it gets some notoriety from having a piano dropped on it, and if you can sell it with the piano in it, then it's a piece of art, right? But as soon as you restore yeah. it, hell, it's just a Morris Marina again. Why did you yeah. bother to restore it? What's your, uh, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> I get it. That's the whole thing, isn't it? Once you restore it, you run into difficulties, don't you? I mean, and, and you're starting to say its providence is... Uh, is mm. all that's important. You know, this car was mm. once owned by that. That would be like getting the DeLorean from the Back to the Future films and removing the flux capacitor and all the rest of the, <laughs> yes. the stuff and yes. turning it back into the original DeLorean. <laughs> yes. You might have to do that to get it through um, Rego, through the inspection. <laughs> I think it's something like a Morris, isn't it, that's that bit of artwork down by... The Rocks in Sydney, which has a huge boulder mm. dropped on it. Clarkson wasn't involved in that, I believe. No, no, no not this time. But was it the sort of car that, uh, what's him call it, uh, the, the art historian who's since died, Hughes, Robert Hughes? Robert Hughes was crashed into one, didn't he? Have a terrible crash? Something like that. No, they what they did as an artwork is they took that car, because he nearly died in it, and they squashed it into a square. And that was art. Oh. Again, the right. providence of it is rather remarkable. And we talked about Aston Martins. Brian, you have a story. Yes, and we also talked about Jeremy Clarkson, a, a noted self-promoter. Uh, another noted self-promoter is Chris Singh, who uh, is a fellow who's uh, famous for being famous in a sense. He's very rich. He spends ridiculous amounts of money on expensive cars. And so when the Aston Martin Valkyrie was announced, he made sure that he was one of the few who would take delivery of, uh, of this hypercar. Uh, it's not yet built, but he's um, he's arranged for it to be painted with a, a special exterior kind of red colour, but with actual moon dust included. Now, there's much more to this story than just, oh, that's great, there'll be a bit of moon dust in, this, uh, in the paint of this car. But 
moon rocks, it, it, supposedly the, the moon dust comes from ground up, a ground up moon rock. Now, moon rocks are not in public ownership. There's a few that are missing, but basically it's illegal for a private person to own a moon rock. They belong to governments and they are considered to be national treasure. So there's a, quite a bit of question about, about how this gentleman has got a moon rock to make moon dust to add to the paint. Now, it's been calculated that he needs three or four ounces to um, to make enough material to go through the paint because, as they've said, this, this moon rock or moon dust will be all the way through the paint. It won't just be a bit here. It's going to be across the whole thing. And I think the, the value of these things is about $1.4 million per ounce. So he would need three, so it's about four million bucks. So, that, so no one's talking about where he could have got this from. The Americans can account for all of theirs. The Soviets say they only brought back a bit. People are now speculating that it's a meteorite that may a chunk of the moon that he's had tested and will grind it up. Ah. It'd be incredibly quiche, really, wouldn't it, to say that I have something that is of such scientific value that we spent billions of dollars to find, that we might discover more about our fantastic universe and its mysteries, and I've painted my car with it. This is the equivalent of firing your Tesla Roadster into space, though, David. <laughs> I think the sort yeah. of stupid supervillain kind of things to do. And I mean, this guy probably has to be careful whether he gets the car washed or polished. Oh, because, yeah. you know, if it's, it's like sort of $4 million worth of paint on the thing. Is that because it's green cheese? <laughs> you can have a mouse plague and just lose his investment. <laughs> I believe once the car is parked, someone should stick a flagpole in it and walk all over it. <laughs> leave some, some big footprints on it. Oh, if it had a footprint of an astronaut... Now, that would be effective. Ah, yes. Wouldn't that be cool? And he could then, I guess he could drive it very quickly along a beach to, to affect the tides or something like that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough to affect the tides, but it might pull his drink a little bit to the side. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Bye, David. See you, David. That's Errol Smith and Brian Smith here on Overdrive, where we cover all issues from space to the uh, ludicrous movies that star Jim Carrey. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, David Campbell, Alan Zervis and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>